All right, welcome to another edition of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. It's 3.04 on your Friday afternoon, February 3rd, 2006. There are still many out there who believe we had a legitimate presidential election in 2004. Hmm, maybe they haven't seen the extensive evidence of an election fraud of enormous magnitude that's been skillfully documented by our guest. He is Mark Crispin Miller, and today we will be discussing his latest book, Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election and Why They'll Steal the Next One, Unless We Stop Them. Miller is a uh, professor of media studies at New York University, and his previous books include Cruel and Unusual, Bush Cheney's New World Order, and the Bush Dyslexicon, Observations on a National Disorder. Before we get started, I'd first like to remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. Professor Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, Yeah, really want to get into this book. I think this is a very important book, and uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. But I first want to talk about you're involved with a group called World Can't Wait, and uh, you guys have been doing some stuff over the last couple weeks and got something going this week. And could you quickly uh, tell us about that? Yeah, uh, this is a network of people who believe that the situation today is... is, uh, is urgent. We live in emergency conditions. The Bush administration is a lawless regime, uh, well outside of the traditions of uh, American politics. Their ideology, I believe, is much closer to fascism than it is to democracy. I believe they're deeply opposed to democracy, and they're on a, on a very reckless and apocalyptic course. So. The World Can't Wait is uh, an attempt to uh, mobilize people to say no to Bush. Uh, tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. in Washington, D.C., there will be a big march. Uh, we hope it will be big against Bush. Uh, and uh, during the last State of the Union the other day, we were uh, marching all over the country in different cities. Uh, it may It may not start out with a bang, we, we, we hope it will, but uh, I think that this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think that most Americans are fed up with this regime. That includes Republicans as well. So uh, the world can't wait is, is uh, one way to channel that, that energy. There's, there's a website people can check out, uh, worldcantwait.net, which you know, will give people the information they may want. So, yeah, if anybody is thinking, uh, hey, I could get to D.C. tomorrow, they can just go there, worldcantwait.net. .net, right. Okay, great, great. Uh, so that is out there. Let's get into the book, uh, Fooled Again. I, uh, You know, the election was more than a year ago, but I think what you put forth in that book needs to be addressed, and, and it's, it's not going to just go away, what happened there. So that's what really... I think it's important to talk about this. What, what do you say to people who say, um, you know, I don't like the Bush administration, but they did win in 2004. Those extra hordes of traditional values voters, despite the polls, all decided to vote at the last minute. Well, there's no evidence to support that claim. That's line of argument, uh, that there was this huge and unexpected outpouring of religiously motivated voters 
was in fact a Republican talking point, and specifically from the, the religious right, which took credit for having vaulted Bush to victory against all odds, and despite what all the polls suggested and so on, if you examine, uh, if you break it down in demographic terms, there's simply no way to account for this miraculous victory of Bush's. I mean, here, we have a president with the highest disapproval ratings in our history for an incumbent president facing re-election. It was, his disapproval ratings were in the high 40s. The Democratic Party was, for a change, highly unified, uh, more unified than they'd been since 1964. Uh, Ralph Nader garnered only 400,000 votes nationwide in this last election. On the other hand, the Republican Party was divided. I have plenty of evidence in Fooled Again of a number of prominent Republicans, many of them quite far to the right, who opposed Bush's re-election on various grounds, foreign policy grounds, economic grounds, and civil liberties grounds. People like Bob Barr, Paul Craig Roberts, who was Assistant Treasury Secretary under Ronald Reagan, Francis Fukuyama, one of the founding neocons, was against Bush's re-election. Anyway, uh, there, there's simply no way to argue that the Republican Party was unified or that it turned out in force. Now, with all these uh, factors in mind, how, how, is it at all, how is it possible that Bush won 11.5 million more votes than he got against Al Gore in 2000? That's what we're asked to believe. As a matter of fact, there is no evidence. There is no evidence that Bush won this election other than the official numbers. Well, official numbers aren't much. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty thin gruel. On the other hand, there's copious and specific evidence that the Republicans committed massive election fraud, not just in Ohio, uh, and not just in Ohio and Florida, but all over the country, in blue states as well as red, there were people doing everything they could do to pad the Bush vote and cut the Kerry vote. I don't even, I'm not even convinced it was necessarily that close of a race. Now, the reason why it's crucial that we look into this, it's not about trying to change the outcome of the 2004 election. There's obviously no way to do that. There's no constitutional recourse. I mean, he was ostensibly elected, and I don't know what we can do about it. Mm-hmm. The reason I wrote Fooled Again was to demonstrate that we desperately need thorough uh, electoral reform in this country, and as soon as possible. I'd spent the first four years of Bush's presidency warning uh, everyone I could, I could get my hands on about the threat posed to democracy by these electronic touchscreen voting machines, which are in many states of the Union, which are completely unreliable, which provide no paper trail. Their programming codes are, are a secret because they're supposed, supposedly proprietary information. And all the largest companies that manufacture these machines are quite close to the Republican Party. That's an extremely dangerous situation. I'm not a Democrat. Uh, I actually have a lot of contempt for the Democratic Party at the moment because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, its defense of American democracy against this threat is grossly insufficient. I'm, a, I'm an independent, and I've been an independent for some time.
This is not a partisan issue. Both parties are grossly inadequate uh, at addressing this issue. This is a civic issue of profound importance. Therefore, it seems to me that if the American people can find out what happened in 2004, and the book is, again, scrupulously documented, it has 57 pages of precise uh, footnotes. Uh, people can check my evidence for themselves. I believe that if the scandal of that election can finally resonate uh, so that people know what went down, uh, we will have the kind of electoral reform we need. I believe that if the scandal does not resonate, if we insist on moving on and ignoring uh, all the danger signs in 2004, then we're going to ignore the danger signs now, uh, which, are, which are many, and which suggest that the 2006 election is going to be illegitimate. The 2008 election will be fixed. We, we actually have, I think, a disenfranchised majority in this country. Uh, we have a fringe movement that has taken over the government. And uh, this is every bit as dangerous as any kind of a conquest from without. It's probably more dangerous because a conquest from within is invisible to many of us. So, you know, I feel very passionate about this. Uh, I'm quite patriotic. I believe that we have to defend the system from this movement. And unfortunately, there has been a national press blackout on Fooled Again. It's received not a single national review. Uh, only one newspaper in the country has reviewed it. That was the Florida Sun Sentinel. It was a good review. Uh, I can't get on any NPR shows, many shows that I've been on often in the past. The NPR affiliate in uh, Philadelphia has recently refused to broadcast paid ads for the book, and I can't get on any network TV shows, cable or terrestrial. The only national TV show I got on was C-SPAN's Washington Journal. Now, the book has got a lot of good reviews, uh, but not in mainstream places. I believe that this issue is so explosive. The implications of the theft in 2004 are so frightening that uh, the press and the Democratic Party would just as soon try to ignore it and just kind of hope it goes away. But it won't without concerted Democratic action. So you think this is just a matter of... Uh, fear of this monster it's just so out there they they uh i mean is there something else is it there are, are these people npr or other news outlets afraid they're going to be labeled conspiracy theorist or is there anything else to that yeah 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 i didn't mean i didn't mean to explain it in such a unitary way if, you know there there are many motives that people have for clamming up when they should speak out and i think that it's hard to tease out uh, you know, the exact dividing line between uh, psychological denial, you know, just not wanting to go there, and a fear of repercussions like the ones you just mentioned. You know, it, 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 it's, it's all of the above, if you see what I mean. NPR is obviously uh, between a rock and a hard place. They're dependent on our very right-wing Congress for funding, and they're dependent on an increasingly powerful network of uh, so-called corporate underwriters, that means advertisers, so between the advertisers and Congress, uh, PBS and NPR both are extremely timorous. Uh, they'd much rather give us the three tenors and, you know, Lawrence Welk and so <laughs> on than anything, you know, political. Uh, so, you know, I, th I think that there's a lot of motives at play there. Uh, I think in some cases, uh, some Democrats that refuse to discuss the issue are themselves corrupt. 
are probably in the in the tank with some of these big voting machine companies. Uh, whatever the explanation, there is an irrational component to it. Uh, let me tell you my 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 story about John Kerry uh, mm-hmm. on October twenty eighth. Uh, this was about a week before the book tour started. The book was published in early November. I met with Kerry to give him a copy of the book to urge him to speak out on the issue. We had a very good exchange. I told him that he was robbed. He said he knew. He complained about the fact that his fellow Democrats on the Hill won't talk about the issue, which which mystified him. He told me that he had had a big argument the week before with Christopher Dodd of Connecticut, who became downright exasperated that Kerry would even bring it up, said, we looked into this, there's no story there. Kerry was really nonplussed by this and asked me if I had evidence. And I said, there's just tons of evidence. <laughs> and it's all in the book. Read the book. I urged him to consider doing Senate hearings on the state of American electoral democracy. Uh, he said he didn't know if he could lead hearings like that because of what he called the sour grapes factor, but he certainly agreed that it should be a very, a very important issue, a bipartisan issue. Uh, I said I understood the sour grapes thing. It's obviously a problem, but I believe that the evidence is so abundant that he could very sincerely say, you know, I didn't want to believe this for months, but I've been studying it, and I regret to say I think that this, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. We parted on very good terms. He promised to read the book, and I was delighted. I thought, Jesus, this is great. You yeah. know, I mean, he, he's come around. And I, I began to tell the story of my conversation with him uh, on my book tour the following week. A week after I met him on the 28th, I was on Democracy Now!, and I told the story again, and uh, uh, Democracy Now!, the people were really thrilled, so they sent out a press release saying Kerry believes the race was stolen. And about three hours later, his office released a statement categorically denying that he'd ever had the conversation with me. Now, other articles have come out since then, making it quite clear that he does believe the race was stolen, what strikes me as amazing is he had been complaining to me. This was not an off-the-record conversation. I mean, he never said this is just between us. Here he was complaining about the fact that his fellow Democrats are in denial about this issue. He knows what happened. Uh, and then as soon as there's a, you know, a hint that it might get out and he might be accused of paranoia or sour grapes, he immediately turns around, denies we had the conversation, and... Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, betrays democracy a second time. I think his concession was a disaster. I mean, it was grossly premature. I know that John Edwards was quite furious about it. I talk about this in Fooled Again. Right. Uh, Edwards now has a copy of the book, and I'm hoping he'll make a public statement. Some Democrats have had the courage to speak out. Uh, Tom Daschle has, uh, you know, offered us a very strong statement in support of the book, which we use, of course, John Conyers. Uh, But, you know, we obviously have to keep hammering away at these politicians to get them to do what they should do instinctively, which is, you know, make sure that democracy works. You'd think that their partisan self-interest alone would, would guide them to make the right decision, but we, I really don't think we can underestimate the power of denial. What this, what this scandal means is really catastrophic. It means we don't live in a democracy. 
It means that the party in control of the government doesn't believe in democracy. It, it, it means that, that not only the White House, but the Senate and the House, too, are dominated by Republicans on the basis of extremely skillful fraud committed through a broad variety of, of, of tricks and tactics. It was a kind of uh, overkill, is the word that most accurately sums up how the Bush Republicans went at the theft of the election. The point is that they have to steal votes. They have to fake a majority. They have to concoct a mandate because their agenda is just far too extreme for most Americans. Bush's strong support, uh, according to you know the precise statistics, is quite limited to about 20% of the electorate. These are people with theocratic longings. They see no problem with having a state religion. Uh, they've obviously got several seats now on the Supreme Court, but, they, but in no sense do they represent the majority. They don't even represent the majority of Republicans. And I think it's even arguable that they don't represent the majority of evangelicals. Uh, I, I think it's, it's extreme, and the people can see it's, it's extremism. But the problem is that the political establishment, which includes the press and the Democratic Party, are simply too blinkered and too nervous uh, and too establishmentarian, uh, too insufficiently devoted to democracy to, to allow this kind of mass animus to have any expression. How responsible do you think uh, media deregulation and the elimination of, of like the fairness doctrine are to this situation? Oh, enormously significant. Um, I don't know if you've read, have you read David Brock's book, The Republican Noise Machine? I, I recommend that very highly. Uh, that's a, an excellent history of how the right basically seized the media. It took a few decades. And deregulation has been part of it, as you note. Uh, the elimination of the fairness doctrine means that stations can broadcast right-wing tripe uh, all day and night and, you know, not not permit any liberal tripe to answer it. <laughs> they used to have to do that. Uh, it means that, you know, companies can become enormously mon- powerful, monopolies, really, uh, like Clear Channel, which owns over 1,200 radio stations. That's simply too much market power. It's too much influence. Uh, and other kinds of public interest obligations have been tossed out so that really the broadcaster's only obligation is to make as much money as possible and serve his own interests. So because of that deregulation, which was the work of both the Reagan and Clinton administrations, we now have a kind of media trust, you know, a cartel of five or six huge companies that are in collusion with each other, that are far too close to the government, and that therefore don't really report the news in any way that might hurt their interests or the government's. And this is precisely the opposite of, of, of what the press was supposed to, to do, according to the vision of the Founding Fathers. According to the Constitution, according to the framers, the press is to be protected because it is a check on executive power. It is a check on government power. That's how it's supposed to function. It's supposed to keep us informed about what the government is up to and politically engaged in national debate. It does neither of these things. It basically tries to keep us all asleep. It basically tries to to, uh, hide serious scandals and major problems and structural flaws and distract us with, with, you know, apologetics 
and trivialities and celebrity news, uh, I believe that, that that has a great deal to do with the shocking failure of the press to uh, cover the facts about uh, that last election and the one coming up. Yeah, and I think you also have, they're not covering certain things, and then they're also, you have the propaganda network, Fox News, that puts out things that are deliberately false or propagandistic, and I think one of the first big examples of that was the 2000 election when they, what, it had already been decided that Gore had won Florida, and then they said, well, no, that's, we can't say that. That that came from Fox, right? Yes, the story, I tell that story in, in, in full again as well. Uh, it really is remarkable what went down that night, because as you know, you know, Gore was clearly ahead in Florida. The votes were still being counted. The networks called the race there for Gore. Now, Fox was the first and first network to decide that actually Bush was the victor. And at Fox, the decision desk was manned by one John Ellis, who happens to be a cousin of Bush's, and who has said that before this startling turnaround by Fox, uh, he, Ellis, was on the phone with Murdoch and his cousins Jeb and George Bush uh, for quite some time. I mean, this was something that they talked about, they worked on, they thought through. Uh, and it just so happens that the, the, uh, the turnaround came during one hour when the, the Gore votes, there were some 16,000 and some votes uh, in one county in Florida that, that were Gore's votes. For an hour, those 16,000 and some votes were unaccountably divided up between all the third-party candidates. This was some kind of bizarre computer glitch. Right after, or shortly after, they, uh, you know, claimed that Bush had won the state of Florida. The votes went back into Gore's column. No one in the media, with the exception of Ed Bradley at CBS, uh, noticed this or thought much of it. Bradley, and, and this is something that's not publicly known, Bradley was very upset about it and tried to get CBS to focus on it, but nobody would listen to him. And I doubt he would even go public with this story now. The subject is so taboo. But yes, Fox News is an active propaganda organ for the right. But the problem is that, that, that Fox's uh, aggressive propaganda is, is always being seconded, reconfirmed in quieter ways uh, by the other networks and the other major dailies. So, you know, the New York Times, CBS, I mean, CBS's treatment of the so-called Memo-Gate scandal uh, which was was or ought to have been entirely about George W. Bush's National Guard service, became a kind of fake forgery scandal, which resulted in the retirement of Dan Rather and the forced retirement of a number of producers at CBS. To this day, there is no evidence that those memos were inauthentic. Uh, the fact is that CBS absolutely caved in, shockingly, firing the producers involved, shutting up Dan Rather, and basically allowing the important story of uh, this president's really appalling military service to to be suppressed once again, as it had been in 2000. It seems like we're more and more, the news is becoming the way it was done 
in the Soviet Union. Oh, there's no, there's no doubt about it. The only difference is that there, the state owned the press. Okay, here we have that's a closed society. The state owns the press. Cuba, it's the same way. North Korea. Here we have an open society, which means that the press is owned by you know <laughs> gigantic publicly traded corporations, which are so close to the government. The news here might as well be owned by the by the state. It, you know, it's a distinction without a difference. And I will say this: because the state does not own the press in this country, in a way, it's worse. Because in places like uh, the Soviet Union and and Hungary and Poland and these other satellite states, everybody knew that the news was baloney. You know, everybody knew that it was a pack of lies because, you know, the, the control by the state was overt. Here, there's an ostensible diversity. There's an ostensible variety. There's an ostensible independence by the press. But for a whole range of reasons, mostly having to do with big money, uh, for a whole range of reasons, the press here is no longer free or independent. In order to find out what's happening in the world People have to read the foreign press. They have to read blogs. They have to watch the Daily Show, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, yeah. I have a blog I'll recommend. It's markcrispinmiller.com. I post as much information as I can about uh, the, the, the daily threats posed to the survival of American democracy. Over the last month or so, six weeks or so, uh, all over the country, including California and here in New York, there have been big, big drives to try to force the electronic touchscreen machines down the collective throats of the American people. Just over the last month, uh, there have been you know, really heated struggles between the boards of elections in states like Pennsylvania, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Illinois, Maryland, and citizens groups that are trying to get you know, completely reliable, objective uh, uh, voting technologies put into place. The Republicans are quite intent on uh, having these machines used when, when there's every evidence that the machines are untrustworthy. Uh, this never gets covered. Right. You know, where's the news about this? So you have to go to blogs like mine to find it out. <laughs> it's, it's really unbelievable. And, you know, and, uh, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, well, we'll give out your blog again before the show's over. And... Um this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. My guest today is Mark Crispin Miller. We're discussing his book, Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election and Why They'll Steal the Next One Unless We Stop Them. Uh, I'd like to kind of sum up a little bit of some of what we covered in the past half hour and, and kind of see if I can put this in a little perspective as far as the 2004 election, okay, you've written this book. It's well-documented. Would you say about 40, 50 pages of footnotes? 57. 57 pages of footnotes. Right. Nobody's come out, and I haven't seen any even mild, let alone thorough, debunking of this book. We have the Conyers Report. That's out there published as a book. Right. Again, more more documentation. There's at least a couple other books that I know of on the subject. And so it's all out there. Nobody's really disproved any of this. And the mainstream media is not covering it. And, okay, everyone, they talk about Ohio, and it appears to me almost certain that 
that was stolen, that Kerry oh, yeah. got more votes than Bush in Ohio, therefore winning the election. That would give him enough electoral votes. However, in your book, there's also you present plenty of evidence that it, there could be at least five other swing states that went. The official count was opposed to what it probably was based on exit polls and many other things. And I believe it's Florida, Arizona, New Mexico, a couple others. Could, could you talk a little about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first of all, you know, there, there are the exit polls. Uh, the exit polls in five states, four of them swing states, foretold a Kerry victory. And, and those exit polls basically re-echoed what pre-election day newspaper polls had been predicting. Uh, and then, surprisingly, at the very end of Election Day, uh, all of a sudden, Bush was ahead by the same uh, percentage he was supposed to lose by. Now, let's, let's take a look at the specifics here and, and, and get away from the exit polls, because those waters have been muddied by a lot of propaganda. Take a look at New Mexico, one of the swing states, a state where the exit poll actually foretold a Kerry victory. Bush supposedly or allegedly, won New Mexico by some 7,000 votes. Well, if you look into the extensive malfeasance that was committed there, you find, for example, that in Democratic uh, precincts only, over 17,000 voters were unable to uh, vote for president on the DRE machines, the touchscreen machines. In other words, over 17,000 Democrats cast no vote for president. Now, either we're to believe that, for some reason, 17,000 Democrats in a highly contentious presidential race turned out and cast no vote for president, or there was something wrong with the Diebold machines in New Mexico uh, making undervotes inevitable. That's 10,000 more than 7,000. That's 17,000. Right. Or right there, you know, solid grounds for serious questions about about the legitimacy of Bush's victory in New Mexico. There is all sorts of other evidence that I adduce and fooled again. Greg Pallast, great reporter, works for the BBC, although he is an American, has a new book coming out in a few months that has a whole chapter devoted just to New Mexico. Uh, I have some 35 pages of fooled again about about Florida. Florida was was just grotesque. It was a crime spree in civic terms that just, it's mind-boggling. It makes, almost makes Ohio look fairly normal. Uh, states like Iowa, where Bush supposedly won by 10,000 votes, there was extensive election fraud, disenfranchisement, especially in the college towns of Iowa. The point is that, uh, you know, oh, let, let me even add something else. In blue states, like Wisconsin, uh, even there, the, the, there was so much uh, fraud in the cities and in the college towns. This is what happened. Uh, in, in 2000, Gore uh, uh, got about, I don't know, six, 7,000 votes uh, more than Bush, and Ralph Nader got about 92,000 votes. So in 2000, there was about 100,000 votes cast against Bush. In 2004, with the Democratic Party much more unified, with Bush's disapproval ratings much higher, in that blue state, Kerry won Wisconsin by only 11,000 votes, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Now, what, how could that possibly have happened? Nader didn't run. He didn't get any votes in Wisconsin. So how is it that Bush came so 
How did he do so much better mm-hmm. in a race when his disapproval ratings were so much higher and in a blue state? Well, you know, I have abundant evidence in the book of all kinds of stuff that happened in Milwaukee and Madison and Racine and Kenosha. There was extensive, systematic, collective election fraud carried out by the Republicans. And I want to make something clear. You know, I'm from Chicago, so nobody has to tell me that Democrats have stolen elections. I know it very well. I watched Mayor Daley do his thing for years when I was growing up. The fact is that in 2000, 2002, and 2004, there was no systematic Democratic fraud. It just didn't happen. Now, this may sound you know, odd to people who have heard Republicans screaming incessantly about the, the rampant voter fraud that they claim went on in the last election. Well, as a matter of fact, all of their anecdotes of, of voter fraud, you know, people registering hundreds of the dead, people re- registering non-existent voters to get money to go buy crack, there's all these horror stories. Uh, they all turn out to be baseless. The group that they attack most often is one whose acronym is ACORN. It's a, it's a group that agitates for low-cost housing. It tends to try to register people to vote uh, Democratic in presidential elections. Well, ACORN was sued in three states by law firms close to the Republican Party. This is since Election Day. And as of about a month ago, they won their third case. They prevailed. The Republicans couldn't prove that they committed any fraud. Even if they had committed some, this kind of voter fraud is so penny-ante, it's so small-time, it involves so few votes. Whereas... Uh, systematic undersupply of voting machines to Democratic precincts, which happened not just in Ohio, but all over the country. Machines systematically flipping Kerry votes into Bush votes. This happened in at least 11 states that we know of. Extensive and successful efforts to prevent Democrats from registering in the first place. Uh, broad efforts at intimidation. Disinformation campaigns. Uh, 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 aggressive obstructionism in, in polling places. I mean, this stuff is documented. This stuff went on nationwide. Mm-hmm. The Democrats didn't do anything like this. And it's not because they're morally superior. As, as I've made clear, I don't think they're morally superior to much. It's because they didn't have to steal votes, you know? They, they have a little more popularity, right? Well, Bush was so unpopular <laughs> that, that Kerry, although he ran rather a miserable campaign... Uh, I think won anyway. He would have won by even more if if, if they'd had any brains. But uh, the fact is that, that Bush is simply too extreme for the American people and always has been, you know, except for a few months after 9-11 when the nation was in a panic uh, full of terror and anxiety. This guy has never had majority support. Uh, he personally and and his movement ideologically are simply not not tolerable to the American majority, and I, I'm perfectly confident that that's the case. Uh, yeah, I, I agree, and, and it's a you know he didn't he didn't win the popular vote in 2000, and if you read Greg Palast and all, everything that happened in Florida, you, you know that Gore won the race in 2000, popular yes. and electoral. Yes. And it appears from your book that that Kerry uh, won the electoral vote at least Ohio and probably three or four of these other swing states. I mean the the evidence is is so serious there that. Kerry probably won the electoral vote by about 50 points. I would say, and, and, and also, let's be clear, we're also talking about 
the, the Senate, you know, in places like North Carolina, for example, you know, John Edwards State, North Carolina had more machine problems than any state in the Union. I mean, the system there was, was a nightmare. Uh, well, you know, um, a, a, a very far-right-wing Republican was elected to the Senate there uh, over, the, over uh, who was it, um, my memory is playing tricks with me, is it Askew was supposed to uh, win? The de- whoever the Democrat was, was was supposed to win that race. Uh, likewise, uh, in Florida, Mel Martinez, you know, very far right wing, uh, surprisingly won his Senate bid. Well, as I point out and fooled again, there were some five states in the 2002 elections where uh, far right wing candidates won surprisingly. In four out of those five races, Diebold machines were involved. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that the that the, the Republican Senate majority is any more legitimate than Bush's victory. Uh, I think the country is being hustled away from democracy toward fascism by an absolutely uh, relentless, fanatical movement, uh, and and there's there's not sufficient opposition from the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the 2002 race, people have to remember that as well. Cause, you know, everybody focuses on the presidential, but they were able to take control of the Senate in 2002. And there were these uh, three or four uh, races, uh, five, I think you said. And the one that was the most outrageous in 2002 was in, uh, what's Georgia. the guy? Yeah, what's the guy with uh, um, amputee? Uh, yeah, yeah, Max Cleland. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Max Cleland was a very popular political figure in Georgia. This is a guy with a triple amputee, a Vietnam War veteran, uh, and popular, popular with the people of Georgia. Uh, then, you know, this guy, Saxby Chambles, a draft dodger, wins, surprisingly. And uh, typically what the press does when there are these upset victories is to, is to assume the Republican propaganda must have decided the race. Same thing happened in Wisconsin. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Minnesota, when Mondale was defeated by Norm Coleman. This was a surprising victory by a very right-wing candidate in a very blue state. Well, you'll remember there was this big hoo-ha over uh, the Wellstone Memorial, you know, that they booed Trent Lott, and there was all yeah. this screaming and yelling about how outrageous that was. That was the main Republican propaganda point for weeks during that campaign. Therefore, the press concludes, well, here's this upset victory. It must mean that all the screaming and yelling about the Wellstone Memorial defeated the Democrats. Well, that, you know, why draw that conclusion? You know, if, the, if the upset occurred, if it was an upset, if it was unlikely, you know, isn't it, isn't it rational to, to take a careful look at the vote itself to see if it was legitimate? Well, the press in this country and the Democrats can't do this because they're they're paralyzed by the by the belief we could call it a creed that it can't happen here. People who think that it can't happen here haven't studied much American history. The fact is that the framers themselves were absolutely convinced that it could always happen here. I mean, Jefferson said the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. The whole system of checks and balances is based on the assumption that unless it's prevented, it will happen here because that's what power does. That's why every republic and democracy in prior human history has succumbed to tyranny, because it can always happen wherever you are. So the people who think that there's some kind of magic potion that protects 
Americans from from tyranny are are whistling in the dark. Mm-hmm. It really infuriates me. I mean, they they don't seem to understand the whole the whole motivation behind setting up a system as complex and subtle as ours. We have to be extremely vigilant, and we have to get out there, and we have to find the information ourselves. At this point, we cannot rely on mainstream media and the the strange upset races that are falling outside of the margins of error are are just should be raising all kinds of red flags, and we just have to do it ourselves and just go around CBS, NBC, and Fox News, and New York Times, and all these people. Yes, this is out the rabbit hole. KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine. Robert Larson, speaking today with Mark Crispin Miller. We're discussing his book, Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election and Why They'll Steal the Next One Unless We Stop Them. Uh, Professor Miller, I want to uh, talk about, in uh, in your book, there's a chapter called The the Requ- Requisite Fanaticism, and, and you mentioned uh, the fanatic fanatical behavior of the Bush Co., as you've referred to them in their crowd. And this ties in with uh, the theme of your previous book, Cruel and Unusual. What is it about the the mindset of George W. Bush and his extremist propagandists and hate radio and, and his fanatical followers? Yeah, well, the thing that's most striking to me about the Bush Republicans is their their utter dependence on on sheer malevolence. I mean, if, if you took away from Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and Karl Rove and Ann Coulter the impulse to, to, to attack, to smear, to, uh, to insult, to humiliate. I wonder what would be left. I don't think anything would be left. I think that the movement is, is largely driven by what psychologists call projectivity. In fact, the State of the Union speech that Bush just gave the other day <laughs> was a classic case of projection. Projection means attacking others for the things you hate most in yourself. Uh, and I believe that the the Bush movement is something more than big money, corporate capital doing its thing. I mean, there's a, there's a misconception, a widespread misconception on the left, that what we're seeing now is simply a matter of of capital. That it's 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 purely economistic. This is a mistake, because that that excessively rational interpretation of what makes these people tick. It does not account for the apocalyptic thrust of the movement. There's something suicidal about this movement. Their, their eagerness to exhaust the Earth's resources, for example, is not simply a matter of trying to satisfy the lumber and the mining industries and the car industry. Uh, uh, Stephanie Hendricks, a Pacifica producer, has written a new book called Divine Destruction. In fact, she's out in the Bay Area there. It's uh, published by a house called uh, Melville House. Divine Destruction analyzes the theological roots of this regime's fierce anti-environmentalism. They believe that it, it is a good thing to use up the Earth's resources because the sooner we exhaust our resources, the quicker Jesus will come back. Mm-hmm. These are people whose you know, interest in the war in Iraq is not about oil. Now, of course, oil figures importantly. The constant emphasis on oil exclusively is extremely short-sighted because there's a very powerful component of religious fanaticism that drives, I think, the military in Iraq. There are a lot of generals uh, uh, there, like Jerry Boykin, who helped to design the Abu Ghraib policy. 
uh, are are really fanatical, crusading Christianists, you know, comparable to the Islamists, uh, you know, led by the likes of Osama bin Laden. Bush himself has said that he believes the war uh, in Iraq is a religious war. That a close relative of his was quoted to this effect in a biography uh, of the Bush family, collective biography. It was written by a pro-Bush uh, pair of historians. This is all in cruel and unusual. What's, what's significant about, about the crusading mentality, and this is true of the Islamists, it's true of the Christianists, it was true of the Nazis, it's true of certain extreme Zionists. I mean, it's just, it just marks paranoid movements by and large, is this conviction that they are on the side of good and are attempting to wipe out unspeakable evil. These are all projective movements. These are all movements devoted to destroying in the other what they hate most in themselves. And I think that this mm-hmm. helps us understand the strange prevalence on the Republican far right of closet cases. I mean, how many of these guys have we heard of who are absolutely out of control homophobes, <laughs> right? Who turn out to be, you know, they get arrested in some men's room somewhere. <laughs> this, you know, it yeah, sounds yeah. it sounds like I'm doing shtick, but it's I think it's really significant that this this is projectivity at its worst. And I think that a lot of the Republican election theft was sincerely motivated by a deep conviction that if they don't don't break every law possible to deliver the vote to Bush, then the Democrats will do it. So that there's always this belief that they're acting defensively. And this is the way the Islamists operate. Al-Qaeda saw the destruction of the Twin Towers as a defensive act, uh, as, an, as an attack, uh, as a preventive attack on a movement that would uh, otherwise wipe out Islam. The Nazis actually believed that the Holocaust was a defensive measure to prevent world Jewry from wiping out the Aryan people. You know, I think this is a real pathology. I think it's all over uh, uh, the statements of someone like Bush. As I point out in Fooled Again, it's, it defines the mentality of Tom DeLay. It defines the mentality of, uh, of Clarence Thomas. It has a great deal to do with the kind of virulent anti-democratic sentiment of these rightists who essentially detest democracy. They see all disagreement as, as aggression. Uh, they impute their own malevolence to the other side, and consequently, they see their political adversaries as demonic. And I think that this, this kind of fanaticism, I, I don't just think it, I think I demonstrated that this kind of fanaticism uh, played an important role in in uh, driving a lot of the disenfranchisement at the grassroots level in 2004. There were a lot of people from, uh, you know, uh, uh, religious colleges and universities that are that are heavily into what we call dominion theology. These are people who believe in theocracy. Yeah. A lot of this stuff that happened uh, in the race in 2004 grew out of a long process of co-optation of the Republican Party by the Dominionist uh, religious right, who made it their business starting in the early 90s to take over the Republican Party in much the way that the Bolsheviks uh, rose to power in Soviet Russia. Uh, in fact, some of these people, like Ralph Reed and, and uh, Paul Weyrich, have actually praised 
the example of uh, Trotsky and Lenin, and without irony. I mean, they admire their tactical acumen, and they admire their their uh, sort of re- relentlessness. I think we're dealing with a very similar mentality there, and I, I think that it's a huge mistake to regard this all as window dressing for the dumb, pious masses uh, uh, arranged knowingly by rational actors who secretly know better and are only interested in, uh, you know, seizing the government and making as much money as possible. There's something more to it than that, something far more destructive, uh, something fundamentally opposed to the principles of the Enlightenment on which this country was based. Uh, yeah, well, I think this... Uh this whole psychological uh, aspect of it that you brought out in, in Cruel and Unusual, it had such a, a resonance of validity when I heard it, and it just explained so much, and this projectivity, and you know, with George W. Bush, there's this obsession with Saddam Hussein and getting Saddam Hussein, and Saddam Hussein is a bad guy, and he tortures people, and no sooner did we get him out of there, and we start up our own torture regime. I, I know, it's grotesque. It, I mean, it, 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 yeah. We have, it, we have replicated that regime. And it's not even as orderly as his regime was. You know, I say this as someone who was active against him back when Bush's father mm-hmm. was uh, lobbying against sanctions on him. So I have no illusions about that guy. He's monstrous. But it's true. Bush's, Bush's uh, uh, constant nattering about him is, is projective. So, so is his nattering about um, Kim Jong-il, whom he was always you know, tearing into. Uh, without any restraint, uh, everything he said about everything he says about these guys actually applies to himself as well. But he can't accept it, and so that's you know he projects it outward on, onto others. This is what you demonstrated in *Cruel and Unusual*. And another thing that you had in, in there, uh, I really liked this was. Uh, uh, let me see if I got this right. You, you say that that Bush Jr. and many of his supporters. They, they half believe their own propaganda, therefore are able to get so passionate and worked up about it. Like, That's say, right. Bush Sr., uh, uh, on the other hand, is as evil as some of his agenda may have been, completely knew it as, as propaganda and knew he was lying and could therefore not be as convincing to those susceptible to such things. Yeah, yeah I, I think Bush Sr., well, see, both Bushes, you know, the reason why we laugh at Bushes, uh, you know, when he mangles the language... We laugh, I think, mistakenly believing that that he he makes those mistakes out of stupidity. It isn't stupidity, but Bush actually makes those hilarious mistakes only when he's trying to talk about things he doesn't really believe in. When Bush is talking from the heart, when he talks about war, punishment, terror, torture, uh, he's always clear. He's always grammatical. He's always coherent. When he tries, however, to talk about democracy or education or peace or the environment, when he tries just to pay lip service to those things, that's when he makes the most hilarious mistakes. And his father was pretty much the same way. I think that the most effective hate propagandists, and I think this is true throughout history and across the face of the planet, the most successful hate propagandists are not mere icy, detached technicians who have no emotional investment in the propaganda. They are simultaneously, I believe, uh, detached and manipulative on the one hand, but also fervent believers in what they're saying at the same time. I think that's true of Goebbels. I think that's true of Hitler. I think it was true of, uh, of, 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 of Lenin and Stalin. There's a paranoid dimension 
to 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 these people's minds that that you know they're speaking out of a deep fanatical commitment to their own program bush is such a fanatic bush really believes that god is on his side he really does believe this mm-hmm. uh, i mean if you read this extensive literature about his religiosity much of it is 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 very uh supportive of him but it doesn't take a trained psychologist to see that the guy is, is, is grandiose, as psychologists say. He really thinks that God has asked him to do these things. And uh, this has been reconfirmed repeatedly. And there are a lot of people around him who, who share that view. Uh, you know, Karl Rove is obviously deeply cynical, but he means business, you know, he doesn't intend for the Democrats ever to supplant the Republicans. He doesn't intend ever to lose any more elections. He expects to enjoy a permanent majority. So while he may be cynical about deploying certain tactics and tricks, I think he is a, a profoundly committed anti-democratic ideologue. He's someone who really detests pluralism and democracy and wants to see to it that they remain uh, uh, abject and, and feeble forever. Uh, Professor Miller, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'd like to go on, but we're just about out of time. Uh, it, do you want to real quick uh, give out the, the information about World Can't Wait? And, yeah, if uh, anybody's interested in protesting uh, Bush vehemently right now, uh, go to the worldcantwait.net. Uh, anyone who's interested in reading up on what's going on uh, electorally these days in preparation for the theft of the next election and also to read about efforts to fight what's happening. Go to my blog at markcrispinmiller.com. And I would also say, you know, if anyone there at Irvine wants to bring me out uh, to, to speak, to sign books, I'd be glad to come. I didn't go to L.A., uh, Southern California, on my book tour in November because my publisher couldn't get any media uh, attention down there. So uh, they can't pay for any of this. But if anyone can afford to bring me out, I'd love to come, love to talk to the students there. I feel very strongly about this. Okay, well, I'll put the word out on that. And it's uh, the book is Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election and Why They'll Steal the Next One Unless We Stop Them. And that's published by Basic Books. Mark Crispin Miller, Professor of Media Studies at New York University. Thanks a lot, Robert. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. All right, we're out of time here on Out the Rabbit Hole. I will be back with you next week. My guest will be Ryan Dawson. We're going to do an anti-neocons update, as we need to do periodically. It'll be a great show. And this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're on the web at KUCI.org, and uh, I'd like to remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents.